Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The Voice, River Radio of the Thames Valley. You're listening to the Sports Show on River Radio. This is Extra Time. This is the, the, the Sports Show. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, where we bring you all the sports news from the Thames Valley and beyond. I'm Will Taylor, and over the next hour, I'll be talking you through debate and discussion with co-host Ed Talton. So come and join us as we get stuck into another episode of Extra Time. This week, we talk all the local football, including a famous win for Maidenhead United last night, Reading's Reading's fixture this evening, and another last-cast winner for Wickham at the weekend. We'll also be chatting to Bucks resident Jen Cullen as her team prepares to be the first all-female crew to row the Atlantic. And of course, we'll we'll be bringing you our Hot Topic section. Stay tuned for that and much more on this week's Extra Time. Hello and welcome. That's right, we're back once again. It's a it's an unfamiliar team, perhaps, that you're used to. There's a lot of chopping and changing here at Extra Time. Great content, as always, it must be said. But if there was an A-team, I'm not saying there is, if there was an A-team, me and Ed Tolton are sat away from each, across from each other, I think we'd make it, mate, don't you? Well, we're about to find out, yeah. aren't we, I think? <laughs> a lot of squad rotation exactly, in the studio, yeah. it has to be said. Uh, but I'm glad to be back for the for the second week in a row for the first time in, I don't know, about three months, which yeah. is great. Obviously, um, doing a slightly different uh, job role now, which means I'm, I'm not quite as available as I once was. We've we've moved the show at my request, um, <laughs> and I'm still not coming on, everyone. Um, but I'm doing a few, and it's great to be back. And opposite yourself as well, who um, you look good in the big chair. You do. Yeah, well, I mean, it, <laughs> the, the thing is, I can picture everyone seeing like an actual big chair across from you now, um, but that's definitely not the case. It is a normal sized chair. I can't stress that enough. Yeah, I mean, d- it's not that made it sound like you know, you know, yeah. the, you know, the Big Brother chair. It made it sound a bit like it's not like that. It should be, and that's you know probably. If you could do the voice, we'd definitely take do the it. Show like take that, it out of petty cash. Yeah, um, exactly but no, back on. Really delighted to be here. It's uh, it's been a, an interesting week as as we were just discussing mm. our fair, both in terms of Thames Valley sport and personally. Yeah. Um, but uh, less of that, more of a more of the sport let's crack on absolutely I mean it to be fair it, it has hasn't it because I mean just when you think you know that there are weeks where we look at the results and we think you know there's not necessarily something there we're going to have to try and sort of spin it a certain way there's no spinning needing to be done tonight at all is there because the story is almost written themselves I mean we'll get into Wickham a little bit more but that's it's another last minute winner for them which is just ridiculous I mean it's indicative isn't it you you start to get a feeling that 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 something's afoot at Wickham mm. I, I was there again at the game on on Saturday and with Morecambe you ever so slightly sense that, that there might be something coming. I mean, Wickham had scored three goals in the second half, clearly, before they'd scored the fourth. And because they'd scored those three goals, you really felt there might be something. Wickham scored just before half-time against Kura Alexandra. And in the second half, you just sort of gradually got the sense that this was kind of winding down, only for Crew to score. And all of a sudden, you didn't sense that Wickham were going to be able to step it up a gear. Um, and they played seven minutes of injury time. Seven minutes. That's it was insane. Yeah. And, and Tafazoli, I mean, he didn't know a lot about the first goal. Uh, the ball kind of hit him on hit him on the knee through a crowd of players and it deflected past Will Jeskalainen. The second goal, I mean, he couldn't have finished it any better if he was a striker <laughs> outright, to be honest. Like you say, we'll get into that. But uh, as I say, you, you get a certain sense at Wickham that there is, there is something afoot here and it could be a special season. Of course, and we will be, of course, 
joined by our Reading correspondent Jacob shortly um, in a little bit later in the show to have a chat about their game, which is at eight, I believe, seven forty-five or eight o'clock this evening, um, which which will be a hell of a lot to get into. But um, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, we're kicking off today's show with what I would call the shock of the week at York Road last night. Um, Ryan Reynolds and Rob, Rob McElhenney, I always I always butcher that. Um, we're in attendance. Uh, obviously, the Wrexham owners, the Hollywood story as it's been billed. Um, but the man shocked a very wealth. Wealthy Wrexham outfit in a blockbuster game. I was there to sort of see it all unfold. Um, and at the end, I, I was lucky enough to, to be there with Grace Scott as she caught up with goal scorer and key man in the in the win, Jay Mingy. This evening, what did you make of that game? I mean, a very good game. I think it was a it was a tough one. Surprisingly, when they went down to ten, it should be easier, but they kept coming at us, and you know. I think we did well to get another goal and to secure the win. So, yeah, it was good. Good fun. How are you finding your time at Maidenhead so far? Yeah, really enjoying it. Nah, really good. Playing games, you know, it's no better feeling. So, yeah, it's good. What's the mood like in the dressing room at the moment? Everyone's buzzing, you know. <laughs> you know, FA Cup win. Now we've got another win last week, Saturday. Now that's three on the bounce now. So, just on to the next game now, get more wins. On a personal note, you obviously want to impress um, and go back to your parent club, but how important is it for you? What, what's your sort of goals while you're here at Maidenhead? Just play senior football, you know, week in, week out. I think I'm at the age now where I need to be playing games and I think this was the best place for me to come and do so. So, yeah, it's good. Brilliant. Thanks yeah. for your time, Jay. Thank you very much. Take care. Jay Mingy there catching up with Grace Scott after the game yesterday. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be there. It was it was incredible. I mean, I think there's certain certain things you think going into a football game where there's some sort of script that's been built, and and you know it it was always destined. Especially you know when you saw them rocking up in the stadium ten minutes before kickoff, Ryan Reynolds and and Robert, you sort of thought there's there's something there that that. It just meant that Wrexham were going to win. The cameras were all there for the Netflix documentary. You thought they'd rock up and see a win. And two quick goals 20, 20 minutes later, and it's, it's looking terrible. I mean, I mean, obviously you weren't there, but you, you were sort of keeping an eye on the score. Even to you, it must have come as a bit of a shock. Well, I think the, the thing with Wrexham is that they've had these, you know, dare I say, blockbuster owners come in. There's been a lot of furore around that and and clearly they know that the owners relatively speaking for that level of football have got decent money to put into the club I mean their manager is Phil Parkinson two and a half years ago I was at a Wickham game against Sunderland and Phil Parkinson was manager of them Mm. Sunderland had been in the Premier League a couple of years before that it is a slight case of how are the mighty fallen for Phil Parkinson but I would imagine that there is significant money going into his pocket for doing that job Mm. and he has got the pedigree that makes you feel like he should be a success at that level that squad for Wrexham, to be clear, I've looked at it. That's a squad for the division above, you would think. If not the division above that. Exactly. So it, so it is kind of bizarre how poorly they are doing relative to that. But it takes more than money mm. to to be a successful football club. And we've seen that time and time again. I mean, looking back at the Premier League when Fulham came up and spent about £150 million and went straight back down again. The tale of that is, is kind of there, isn't it? Um, but I have to say, you know, for Maidenhead, who had had such a poor run beforehand, you know, not winning in about eight games, they'd beaten Woking 3-2 and they needed that. And they'd beaten Hastings before. I think they needed to just reset into a competition that was different and just get a positive yeah. result which they did and you can only beat what's put in front of you I mean the thing I want to ask you first and foremost to someone who was there 
Was there a, did people know that they were coming? The cameras were there, but did they know that these two Hollywood A-listers were going to rock up, or I, was it a surprise? I can honestly say there were, no one had absolutely any idea at all. Like even I, I was in the press box next to two very very distinguished commentators from BBC Radio Wales who were switching in between English and Welsh, which was very confusing to my ear to, to the left of me. But regardless, yeah, because you're still struggling with fluent exactly, English, aren't you? exactly, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and they were shocked. They said we're getting we're getting reports that, that Ryan Reynolds is here, and they they couldn't quite believe it. So I mean, if, you'd think if anyone was in the know, it would be them. I, I've I've come to now know that I think I think Maidenhead had been warned about it, as you would hope they would be. Um, I presume so because but, the amount of security but, required uh, alone. But even then, they boring. they didn't even know till the Monday because obviously with all the quarantine rules and their filming schedules and all that sort of stuff, it, it wasn't a hundred percent sure that they'd be able to do it. But in they strolled one, um, you know, they they wearing their Wrexham jackets and all. It was so so surreal because I was I, they were sat on the very top row and, I, and so was I and there were periods if the ball sort of went out of play I'd just sort of look along the stand and for a brief moments you just see Ryan Reynolds sat there and you just sort of do a bit of a double take like hang on sorry <laughs> I'm, I'm at York Road and about 20 seats that way is is Ryan Reynolds who I watched in Deadpool two years ago do you know what I mean it was it was so so surreal but but I mean it, to, to be totally fair it didn't actually um it's not like that. that's all there was to talk about because I mean had it been a nil-nil we'd probably be sat here talking about Ryan Reynolds until we were blue in the face but the, the game in itself was just incredible as well. I mean, it was, it was the, the way they started. I mean, you, you mentioned the money have Paul, Mull- Paul Mullin, 34 goals in League Two last season, offered a whole host of contracts in League One, even a few in League Two. And, you know, obviously money plays a part. He chose to take a step, essentially what is two or three steps down to go to go to Wrexham. Ben Tozer, the captain of Cheltenham, he obviously scored against Man City in that famous FA Cup game where it looked like Cheltenham might come through. That was a massive step down for him, but they've all done it. And I generally, although money plays such a big part for Wrexham, so much of it was to do with this whole sort of buying into a project. And I generally believe they all do. But something's missing there. They, those first five minutes, they, they run rampant, but they couldn't deal with a maidenhead counter-attack at all. And Joe Mingy, who we just heard from, he was just phenomenal all day. He was beating, you know, he was just weaving in between players. They, they just couldn't, could not contain him at all. And up front, Kane Ferdinand looked the real deal. He, he gambled on a cross for their first goal that was absolutely excellent. And they're 2-0 t- well, up after 23 minutes, two goals in two minutes. You're thinking, right, that's, you know, you wouldn't write Wrexham off, but it can't go much further. And then... And then they have the sending off in front of the dugouts, which I was on the opposite side for. I didn't get as, as much a view as I would have liked. And you're sort of thinking, oh, that's got to be it now. But in, in classic Wrexham style, in classic Hollywood style, they, they came back and, and the second goal was an absolute beauty from, from Jordan Davies, by the way. But as the game went on, they didn't, and this is a problem more off the more on normal like sort of in managerial leagues. They just didn't take the game by the scruff of the neck. They probably could have won that game for two another night. But I mean, if, the thing you'd say about Maidenhead, they were just completely relentless. They were just they they just did not stop. They were to a man defensively solid. Um, in goal, Reese Love, it was unbelievable. He smothered everything that came his way. Obviously, Paul Mullin, such a big striker, he was on top of him. He was he was absolutely incredibly just claiming balls everywhere, and it was just one of those things. It just wasn't their night, and it was Maidenheads. If I know that sounds like a very basic thing to say, but it just that was just absolutely the case of, of sort of how it unfolded. So it was it was a it was an incredible night. The atmosphere was brilliant, and you know the Wrexham fans who I was sat just behind because that's where the press box was I wouldn't want to be sat there again if I got the choice purely because they were not happy at full time and there's only so much discontent you can show isn't there you, you- 
to a point, I think you have to you have to look at it logically. You know, if you're if you're Ryan Reynolds and you bought a club and you're then going to losing to a team who are part time, part time, you, exactly. you're going to ask some serious questions. And and this is the thing for Phil Parkinson because obviously, you know, as I say, in a, a couple of years ago, he was in the dugout at Wickham in a team that were trying to get promotion back to the Championship, which infrastructurally is the least that Sunderland deserve. Mm. But for whatever reason, it's it's not quite happened for them. And I think you know the Netflix documentary about Sunderland Till I Die has, has kind of uncovered a few of the reasons for that. But you know ask the question of him really if you've got a situation where you've got a squad that's quite possibly capable of playing certainly in the league above and possibly the league above that and you're not getting the results what does this mean for you going forward the thing I want to ask you though about Maidenhead and how industrious they they seem Mm. to have been in that game did you get the impression that the way that that it's kind of been spun to the Maidenhead lads is that this is a little bit of a free hit because to be perfectly honest with you look at the amount they're paying look at some of the players they've got no one expects you to get a win here but you did go and get a win the other day just go and do more of the same lads and enjoy playing with a lot of people watching tonight and just see what happens. Take that gamble. Because nine times out of ten, as you were just saying, perhaps Wrexham go and win that game. But this was that tenth time. Exactly. I mean, I, I think you're right. And I think it was one of the maidenhead players. That it, was like, it was just such bravery. And I think it was that freedom of playing. Like the way, the way even, you know, Sam Kelly was going down the wing. It was just Josh Kelly, sorry, was going down the wing. It was just genuinely excellent. And it was, they, they were just driving. And it was a freedom of the way they played. There were, there were some adventurous passes I saw. Where I'm thinking, I, I don't know if I, you'd normally see them try that. Do you know what I mean? Just because I feel, I feel like they sort of thought they could. The same thing when they played Woking on Saturday. I think that the cameras were out. It was a free scoring Woking team. They'd gone away to Notts County and one they've gone away to all these places and beat beat these sort of high level teams so this Alan Devonshire's going why not do you know what I mean and they've been due wins as well they've played teams where they haven't deserved to, to lose games and they have if you know what I mean so they've been due it and they are they are a very good side I felt like every time we were coming on here over the last few weeks we were talking about how unlucky Maidenhead were to not get a result and it sort of feels like the tide is turning I mean even when I spoke when I spoke to Ryan Peters in past weeks he said you know the performances are there that they are it's just that the issue the issues have either been in, in one game it's you conceding too many in the other game you can't stick it in the back of the net there, there doesn't seem to be any in between whereas they're really seeming to strike that balance they won't be happy they've conceded four goals in their last two games and one of the goals certainly last night was avoidable it's a ball in the box that could be cleared and, and it's ricocheted around for Paul Mullins so it's, it's one of those but ultimately that they're back on the right track and this is the maidenhead that I certainly expected to see from the start of the season it's taken them a while to ease in I think they've, they've struggled to get the balance right after losing so many key players but they certainly seem to be a team that are they're heading back to where they where they think they belong and where they where where they should be in the National League. No, absolutely. And it's good to see a couple of goals with Sam Barrett as well, who's a, who's a great little player. And, you know, he scored, I think, in the in the game against Hastings as well. And that probably gave him some confidence. And, you know, it's three wins on the bounce now for them after such a torrid run. You know, they, they are at such a deficit in so many ways in terms of the finances, in terms of the ground that they play in, in terms of the fact they're not full time. But I honestly think there will be three worst teams or two worst teams or whatever in, in the National League this year. I don't think they're in danger of going down. You only have to, fin- you know, if you finish 18th or whatever, it's a disappointment based on you finished last time but ultimately staying in the league is the most important thing and they look like they're on course to do that yeah I mean the issue is you won't see many part-time teams finishing in the top half of the National League just by the virtue of fact how how in just how competitive it is this year there's so many good teams up there there's four teams that could win the league and, and Stockport have just parted company with Simon Rusk so you can expect them to see kick on with a new manager I think there's a, there's certainly a lot to expect I mean it certainly was a great result for the Stripes though and two positive results might have just kick-started their season or at least we certainly hope so next up though we'll be talking the game taking place this evening it's the Royals under the lights against Bournemouth 
That's right, the Royals are under the lights tonight against Bournemouth. I might have to just be corrected there because I believe we're going to talk about Wickham Wanderers next instead. Um, so, just uh, Ed, obviously you were at the game on Saturday. What sort of overall did you make of that? Um, you know, it was one of those where it was it was very it was very like the performance against Morecambe where um, Wickham looked maybe a little bit a little bit jaded. They did go up, they did go ahead, and, and I think that was born to some extent of the in terms of the tiredness because they'd been on the road, they'd been in Yorkshire, and they did stay in Yorkshire. They didn't get home till four o'clock in the morning, um, and they'd been at Doncaster at the weekend, and they'd won that game. They then got a very uh, credible draw away at Rotherham at the New York Stadium. But as I say, they didn't get home till four o'clock in the morning, and and perhaps there were a couple of tired legs in there. It, they just weren't quite at the races, and I think in a sense, uh, two worlds collided really because there was the the situation the players were in on the pitch in terms of that and then there was the expectation in the stands crew were 23rd in the league going into the game um, and had just been beaten 3-0 and 4-0 in successive games the 4-0 was to Sunderland um, and you just sort of sense that they were kind of there for the taking everyone expected it myself as well no one thought that the crew would put up the fight that they did crew had to be better than they had been on the other hand Wickham maybe maybe as I say weren't quite at the races and perhaps that was that was how how the game ended up playing out as it did um but great for Tavazoli to get a couple of goals and look if you can win a game of football winning in the last minute is is one of the ways that many of us would choose to do it but um as I said uh, during the intro you didn't sense that was coming um but another positive result they remain not only unbeaten at home they've won every league game at home this season so far um and as I say you, you just start to get the feeling that something special may be happening over there at Adams Park I think I think you're right I mean it's it's funny at Torquay we have Gary time because we always seem to score in the last minute is this <laughs> Gareth time now is it getting into with Gareth Ainsworth I mean think? it certainly has felt like that the last couple of times it has to be said but you know what I think the thing that, that Ainsworth himself has been really keen to emphasize is that when those two things have happened they're not going away and going we got the win isn't that brilliant they're going away and going we got away with that today and we weren't good enough and we need to be better but the important thing is they are still winning those games and there is a difference between the two it's it's not a case of simply winning a game and going well that's all it's about it's the way you win the game and the performance that you put in when you win a game if that's not good enough then you will come unstuck in other places um, but I think you know they lost a game against MK Dons and then won, and won like the next four in the row um, so I, I do think that the the emphasis is very much on standards but this is a very good squad he's got probably the best squad he's had at Wickham mm. since he's been in charge um, and you really do feel that the playoffs would be the minimum and he's not playing that down no, he's not absolutely. I mean, and he did speak to uh, he did speak to someone after the crew game as well, um, which we've got the audio of, uh, and this is what he had to say. I've said to people that the expectation has gone through the roof here since the Cougs took over, since we've been Championship. I'm really proud, really, really proud that all the years before Robin and Pete Cougs came in, it's always been a looking down, worried about going down or how, how how long can we survive. We have got this opportunity now to, to have aspirations of, of the second biggest league in, in England and the fifth biggest league in the world, the Championship, and, and it's a genuine chance. I'm not going to play it down. I believe these boys can achieve. I want them to achieve. There's some tough teams in our league. We can be amongst them. It's going to take depth and rotations and everyone believing and everyone staying true to our values. But um, for once, you know, I'm not going to... I'm not going to say it's all about 50 points. I can't. I'll be in trouble from Rob if I say that. So uh, it's all about how many points we can get and hopefully that'll be enough to uh, to have a crack at getting back to the Championship, which we, we loved last year. 
I mean, you, that's Gareth Ainsworth there just talking. And like you said, he is playing it down, isn't he? He's sort of saying that, you know, he hopes that they can get there and that that's definitely the view, but he's not going to come out and say, we're going to get, we're going to be in the championship next season because, you know, that that's that's a slippery slope. Are you almost a little bit surprised? Because I, I certainly am in the way that I thought they'd come back down and it'd be a little bit more of a, of a dog fight, especially with the, I know they obviously had a great run, but it didn't really look like at many stages in the championship that they were going to stay there until they had a great run at the end. And they were obviously very unfortunate with how it ended. They probably should have stayed up, especially with everything that happened with Derby. But were you to an extent sort of surprised that they that they are doing as well as they are straight away after bouncing back? Um, to a point, I suppose I kind of am. I think that what probably played into their hands is that that run they had right at the end where they won five games out of the last eight mm. kind of made a real firm fist of it because a lot of people yeah. had Wickham relegated pretty conclusively after the first half of the season. I yeah. think they won two games of the first 21 and then they sort of change things around a little bit and put up a firm fight. I think that maybe probably helped them in the transfer market a little bit. I mean, the signing and the capture of someone like Sam Vokes is absolutely massive for that club. Massive. Not because Sam Vokes is necessarily scoring all the goals. He isn't. They are actually spreading those around, which is really positive. But it was just a statement of intent. And if you've got players in your team, we've talked about, you know, Danilo Orsi over at, over at Maidenhead, for example, or someone like Lucas Zhao at Reading, mm. someone who the opposition have to think about. They're maybe not quite as cavalier in their going forward if they know that there's someone that on the break could maybe give you a bit of a bloody nose. Mm. So I think I was maybe a little bit surprised, but teams equip themselves in different ways when they come down. The good thing for for Wickham was that they did strengthen the squad when they went into the championship. They didn't really lose too many of those players. They came down and they strengthened it again. So the squad that they have now is so far ahead of the squad they actually got promoted with that I'm not that surprised that they've been able to, to do what they have equally that's not an exact science and you can go down with a really good squad and for some reason it just doesn't work so you know credit to Gareth Ainsworth and his team I think that the interesting thing about promotion is he's willing to entertain it and at least discuss it whereas I think previously he's always tried to play it down a little bit but at the same time the level of this football you'll have seen it yourself in the National League every team has got a bad run in them it has to literally be one game at a time because if you start looking too far ahead of yourselves then gradually you you can fall into a situation where you maybe don't win one two three on the bats and all of a sudden you're in a bad run and that's all anyone's talking about so it is a one game at a time scenario but uh, as I say really positive and uh, they've got Ipswich Town coming up next I think uh, on a a Tuesday night so that'll be that'll be a good game to look forward to as well yeah I think they have Fleetwood coming up as well I believe shortly I'm I'm not too sure I actually know the striker really well who plays for Fleetwood he's one one of my friends growing up so that's a bit of a conflict of interest for me that's all I will say but um, <laughs> but, but no I mean they, they, they seem to be a side really heading in the right direction and it's, it's nice to see a team sort of um, acting like that and doing that well I mean it's like you said that, that one game, game at a time mentality that's that's not a new thing to them though is it that's something that I even remember the year where it was points of a game and everything and it was all sort of a, a, a very complicated scenario it was even then Gareth Ainsworth didn't want to talk about it but it's sort of to, to an extent how far Wickham have come isn't it that he's willing to and that's sort of expectations a strong word but that is where they want to be isn't it yeah absolutely and I think the reason that last time he didn't he didn't want to talk about it so much is that it was kind of a surprise to everyone that they were where they were that you know they were top of that league for some time I went and saw them play Sunderland they beat Sunderland 1-0 that was a massive game loads of people down there the place went crazy when they did score but to be honest with you that there was always a sense that at some point reality is going to catch us up and it just kind of never did and in fact the point that it did was just when the season was halted yeah, it was about right so, they, it? Yeah. so the points per game thing obviously served Wickham really well didn't serve didn't serve Peterborough quite as well and, and a rivalry has been born of of that scenario but it was what it was 
This time, I think there is a certain expectation that mm. they should at least be challenging with this squad, and that is what they are doing. So, so full credit to Ainsworth and his team. Uh, but fingers crossed, there'll be uh, you know some more some more conclusive results earlier on because uh, I'll tell you, it's aging me going yeah. and, <laughs> going and, and hoping on these on these goals that are coming very very late on. I'd be lying if I said I didn't notice, mate. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, we are going to move on now to Reading, who kick off um, very shortly. So we're, we're going to be speaking to our Reading correspondent, Jacob Hawley. That's right, Reading kick off tonight against a high-flying Scott Parker's Bournemouth team who seem to be just unstoppable at the moment. And obviously it was a very disappointing result for Reading at the weekend. Someone who can give us a little bit more of an insight to that, of course, is our Reading FC correspondent and sports journalist. And taking, arguably taking my place last week as well, which I can't say I'm too happy about. But we are where we are. We are where we are. Jacob, how are you, mate? You Okay. Yeah, not bad. How are you? Yeah, not, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Um, so obviously, first and foremost, before we get into tonight's game, it was a bit of a difficult one against Blackburn, wasn't it? I mean, it was a bit, it's one of those, one of those situations where Reddit are sort of in the game for 60 minutes, two quick fire goals and suddenly it's game over. Yeah, it was a real shame, really. Um, <clears throat> I mean, after the Blackpool game, we've been looking to come back into the Blackburn game and, uh, and bounce back the same way that we did against Cardiff. Um, but yeah, uh, half time, nil nil. You know, we were hoping we could perhaps nick it in the second half. But like you said, when Sam Gallagher scored on the hour mark, uh, it was just moments after when Tyree Stolen doubled Blackburn's lead, and, and there was no coming back from that. We didn't didn't see many other chances that game, and and that was another back to back defeat for Reading. Hi, Jacob. It's it's Ed here. Do you think, to some extent, the manner? with which the, the Reading had lost the game against Blackpool, having been 2-0 up and then losing 3-2 in what was a, a really disastrous second half, to some extent maybe underpinned what happened then at, at Blackburn in the sense that they were perhaps a little bit a little bit jaded by that psychologically or or do you think they were able to kind of hit the reset button and it was a, it was a different performance entirely and, and there wasn't a link between the two? Uh, I'd imagine there was definitely a correlation. I mean, the Blackpool game certainly would have knocked confidence, having been 2-0 up at half-time. Uh, we started brilliantly. We started better than we have <clears throat> most games uh, this season. And maybe that came, that was what was the problem in the end. We started too quickly. We got two two early goals, uh, Scott Dan and Tom Deli bashiru And then the second half, Blackpool just capitalised on our complacency and were able to complete a dramatic comeback. Uh, it's the sort of one that you always want to be you always want to be on the winning side in those games, but it's, it's tough when you you tune it up and you lose the game three two, for the fans, but particularly for the players. So going into that Blackburn game, that certainly would have been playing on their mind, and uh, confidence would have been lower than it has been in recent weeks. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine it would have been when played a part definitely. I mean, so psychologically, then taking on a team doing so well after that sort of um, that sort of result. Um, how 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 do you think the mentality will be going into the Bournemouth game? I mean, you, you can look at it in two different ways, really. I mean, Bournemouth are unbeaten, obviously. Everyone knows that. Unbeaten, 10 wins and four draws from their opening 14 games. They're on a brilliant run. Um, so in, in many ways, Reading have got nothing to lose. Um, there's no expectations. There's no real pressure to, to get a result. A draw would be brilliant. A win would obviously be even better. Um, we beat Bournemouth last season uh, at the Mede- at the Medeski then. Now it's the Slet Car Leasing Stadium. But um, <laughs> yeah, we beat Bournemouth three one last season. 
and we'll be we'll be hoping to we'll be hoping to obviously repeat that but it's a much bigger feat now uh looking at scott parker's side they're a real force to be reckoned with and um we'd be doing well to get anything but yeah it's certainly perhaps a bit less pressure Looking, looking at the opposition that you face, Scott Parker obviously parted company with Fulham. They brought in Marco Silva and he's gone down to pastures new in Bournemouth. What is it about how he's got them playing? What are they doing that has made them so successful? Because, I mean, they, you know, if they do go unbeaten in this game as well, it'll be 15 on the bounce. And, and a club haven't done that since Brighton in, in 2015-16. What is it about this style of play that they bring that, that teams have been struggling to cope with, do you think? I think it's obviously a very, very good squad on paper, uh, which is easy to say, but there, there is obviously an, an element of team chemistry that comes into it. Looking at Scott Parker last season with Fulham, obviously they got relegated from the Premier League uh, under him, but they, they certainly played some good football. And, and I mean, there was a couple of quotes. Mario Lamina was saying when he was playing for Fulham, he just couldn't he couldn't believe that they were relegated the way that they were playing. I mean, that's, that's the way Scott, Scott Parker likes to get his teams playing. Uh, is, is a lot of goals for them when they get going. They really got going in the Premier League and, and Bournemouth this season have done just that uh, in their opening 14 games. And Reading could fall victim to that uh, if they're not careful. So, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll have to be wary of Scott Parker's quick quick play and, and the squad depth that they have are, are very strong options from the bench. They absolutely do. I mean, they're strong enough, even even the starting level. You look at Dom Solanke, he couldn't hit a barn door when playing in the Premier League and he seems to be right amongst the goals. In terms of the Reading team news then, obviously Clark could start over Puskas after Femi Aziz was re-injured against Blackburn. What's the sort of latest with those injuries and, and what sort of team will we expect to see on Saturday? I mean, it doesn't feel like we're ever going to have more than 13, 14 fit first team <laughs> players. Um, at the moment... Like you said, uh, Femi Aziz was re-injured against Blackburn in his first start since uh, since recovering, uh, which is not ideal. Pushkas was obviously dropped for that game. He's had a really poor start to the season, um, and and he can't really justify a, a position in the first starting eleven. I mean, that's definitely down to injuries. I think we all know that. If Zhao was here, Pushkas wouldn't be getting a look in. But um, it's a chance maybe for Clark. Yeah, like you say, uh, Jamari Clark, he's a young just turned 18 the other day. Um, the chance for him to start up top and, and show what he's capable of. Whenever he's come on for Pushkas, he's shown bright sparks. He's been pressing much harder, much higher, uh, and creating opportunities uh, for himself. And who knows, if he if he does get his opportunity against Bournemouth, uh, like, he's, like I said, there's nothing to lose, really. It uh, could be a great opportunity for him to go and nick a goal and show what he's made of. Jacob, really appreciate it, mate. We'll catch up with you next week. Thank you. Cheers. Jacob Hawley there, Reading FC correspondent here at River Radio. I mean, it's certainly going to be interesting to see how the Royals get on on Saturday against such a high-flying team in Bournemouth, but we certainly wish them the best of luck. Uh, Another tough, uh, obviously, you know, up next, we're going to be talking a pretty incredible journey for someone else that's local. Welcome back to Extra Time here on River Radio. It's coming up to halfway through the show and with that we turn our attention to a pretty big task locally as a group of Buckinghamshire women are attempting to become the first all-female crow... First crow, did I just say? You did. Crew to row the Atlantic, I should say, sorry. Um, Ed caught up with with Jen Cullen recently who told us all about this incredible feat that she's going to be trying. 
when I finished uni, I moved to Oxford for my first job. I'd had my eye on Rome for a little while and thought, well, if I don't learn in Oxford, I know we're going to do it. <laughs> so I learned to row in Oxford and then rowed for about six years for local clubs. So that was kind of my route into rowing, which was great. Made loads of friends. It was really good. But yeah, this is a little bit of a different task than river rowing, for sure. <laughs> well, it certainly is. I mean, the task you and your team have committed to is one that will require a huge amount of both physical and mental fortitude. Tell us about it and how the prospect of you all taking part first came around. We're right across the Atlantic, so it's a 3,000-mile unsupported row so we leave from the canary islands so la gomera and we will land hopefully if we get our navigation right in antigua <laughs> and we're expecting it will probably take somewhere from 40 to 50 days so we'll just row in pairs two hours on two hours off 24 hours a day until we arrive um we'd all individually kind of seen this challenge and we'd all wanted to row an ocean separately but we didn't know each other before we came together for the team we actually met in lockdown just over the internet kind of like ocean rowing version of online dating <laughs> so I just put an advert out to some crew members and then yeah we all kind of came together through that so we met in lockdown first time we met was over zoom and then we managed to sneak some times together to go and do some kayaking and things like that and realize that we were getting on really well we we're going to be a good team and then it all kind of went from there but the other three have learned to row for this challenge. However, the other three have some really good ocean experience. There's Emily and JP. They've both done legs of the round the world clipper race. So they've got some really good experience of being out on the open ocean and what it's like to be in those big seas and how to cope with that. So that's going to bring a huge amount to our team. And Erin, she's based down in Cornwall and she's a kayak expedition guide. She's used to taking people out around the coast. And again, she's used to being on the sea and She's really great at navigating. So she's our top navigator. That tends to be what she does day to day as her job anyways. But all three of them, they've got some great experience. But yeah, learnt to row. It's kind of the flip to me. I knew how to row, but I've never been on the ocean before. So together we make quite a good team. <laughs> That's absolutely remarkable. And to be clear about the difficulty, this is widely regarded as one of the toughest challenges the sport of rowing has to offer. So a, a huge undertaking on behalf of all of you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what makes it so challenging is just the unknown. We're a team of four out in this 28 foot boat. So it's really small and we're completely unsupported. So it's just human powered. We're just rowing from one side to the other. And you've got all of the elements to contend with different sea states, different weather. We've got to do all our navigation, the whole thing. Anything that goes wrong on the boat, we've got to know how to fix and maintain all of that as well as deal with the sleep deprivation and all of those things that come with only getting 90 minutes sleep in one time. So that's the thing really that kind of brought us all to it is that it's got a huge physical component to it, but the mental resilience side of it is enormous. Let's talk a little bit about preparation. I mean, you just said that mm -hmm. one of your team members lives down in Cornwall. Physically, mentally, how have you been looking to put yourself in the best possible position to achieve what it is you want to achieve? But also, how often have you been able to even get together? So initially, in lockdown, we obviously couldn't get together very much at all. So everything we were doing was training at home. But once we managed to get our boat, we kept the boat down in Portland, so near Weymouth which was kind of in the middle of all of us, so London, uh, Marlow and Cornwall. And then every weekend from April through to a couple of weekends ago, we've met 
in Portland and got out on the boat to train. That's been really important in terms of just understanding how the boat works, all of the kit on the boat, what we do with it, how we navigate, how we row it, because it's so big (laughs) compared to a river rowing boat and it's really heavy and just living on board. So I say it's big compared to a river rowing boat, but it's actually tiny for adult women to live on. You know, the, the cabins are really small. They're about the size of a single bed if that a small one um you can just about sit up in it and that's it so all of the logistics of life on board we've had to train quite hard for but aside from that we've done loads of other training so we've been really lucky to build a team around us um, of experts in nutrition sports psychology strength and conditioning we've got an ocean rowing coach so We've been doing loads of work in the gym to build our strength and our endurance. We've all got rowing machines at home that we've begged, borrowed or bought from various different places. So getting lots of hours on the rowing machine. We've all tweaked our nutrition so that it it really supports our performance and recovery. And we've got um, a sports psychologist on board as well. So she's helping us in terms of our team dynamics and just making sure that we've got the tools to be successful at sea. So let's talk a little bit about those team dynamics, because you say you'll be rowing in pairs, obviously two hours on, two hours off for 40, potentially 50 days. Will you be in the same pair throughout that course of time? And, And how have those pairs been decided? So we'll mix the pairs up a little bit. So the pairs have been decided in that the navigation team, so that's Erin and Emily, they need to be near all the navigation equipment, which is in the stern cabin, that they know really well how to use and can make sure that we're staying in the right direction. And then there's JP and myself, who are just putting in the power in the bow seat. So we'll sit behind them, but it's actually at the front of the boat because the boat... You face the wrong way in the boat, don't you, when you row? So it all makes it a bit confusing. So JP and I will never row together. So we'll swap seats every two hours. And then Emily and Erin won't row together. They'll swap seats every two hours. But within that, we set our pairs up so that we overlap. So every hour, you get one new person coming on. And for us, that was really good because it just keeps the energy high, especially when you're getting fatigued and you're out there for long periods of time. That's kind of how we've run it. And we talked a little bit there about your training as well, but things like the sleep deprivation, have you prepared for that in any way in terms of almost, you know, living life to a point uh, two hours on, two hours off, you know, even over the course of, say, a weekend? Because presumably you're not going into the boat cold and finding out what that's like on the water in the competition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's probably the trickiest thing to prepare for because all four of us have full-time jobs. We can't work our life around two hours on, two hours off. It doesn't work. Um, But we have done long weekends on the boat and we did a training week out on the boat as well. And we've done 24-hour ergs to raise money and things like that. So we have lived in that two hours on, two hours off, albeit for significantly shorter periods of time. Um, But it has given us a bit of a taster of how hard it's going to be, to be honest. Now, we talked, obviously, about the scale of this challenge on an individual basis, but this is a competition and you not only have set yourself the task of completing the challenge, which in itself would be a phenomenal achievement for anybody, but you've also set yourself a target to try and be the first all-female team to cross the line. Tell us a little bit about that. At what point was that sort of mooted as as a potential aim and how realistic is it, do you feel? Yeah, it's a, it's competition, which which for all of us, I think, actually is good because it gives us a bit of motivation, you know, to keep pushing, especially when times are really tough. But as a team of four, what we've noticed, and this is not exclusive to ocean rowing, but there's significantly fewer females that enter these types of events. Mm. And in our race, there's 
numerous teams of four men, but there's only two female fours. So we have set ourselves the target of trying to win the, the female class. And then from there, we really want to just push and see how far up that leaderboard we can get. There's a wider game of foot here as well, isn't there? Because you have a chosen charity that you're, you're fundraising on behalf of, haven't you? Tell us a little bit about that and, and how it was that you came to select who it is you're representing. Yeah, so we're supporting the Sea Ranger Service, which they're an incredible charity. They're based over in the Netherlands and they're doing a lot of work at the moment to bring that over to the UK. So everyone should start to hear about them a little bit more in the in the near future. Their main aim is around ocean protection and ocean regeneration. But why we chose the Sea Ranger Service is that what they put at the heart of their ocean protection mission is people. They have this huge drive on employment as well as because they're based on the coast and because all of their ships are sailing ships rather than motorized ships then it creates shipbuilding jobs as well so it's this real full circular component that they've done to it just that has got this social side right at the heart of what they do and that was really the key reason why why we selected them i mean that's really wonderful isn't it and how can other people maybe hearing this for the first time support you you have a, a page where people can go and make donations Absolutely, we do. So we've got a website, which is oneoceancrew.org, which has got all of the information about our row and our crew and everything on there. And we're also on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. So we're across all the social media. So head to our website and click on the donate link and it'll take you through to the page. But also just following our journey and spreading the word for us is, is really important. Well, Jen, all of us here at, at River Radio, and I'm sure all the listeners at home wish you the very best of luck. We really look forward to keeping track of your progress and fingers crossed that you hit all the goals you've set yourself. It's an amazing thing you're doing and we wish you all the best. Thanks ever so much. There we go. Jen Cullum there speaking to Ed a little bit about, I mean, just an incredible, incredible idea that I, I, I'm even struggling to get my head around even having listened to that. Um, I mean... Yeah, I mean, you summed it up pretty pretty well at the end there, obviously, with our best wishes and everything. But can you even begin to explain just how how much of a big deal this is, what they're doing? Well, I think the thing is, I went into the interview with certain preconceptions about what must be happening. And mm. they were very quickly shattered yeah. by a, a series of revelations that I hadn't anticipated. You know, having met in lockdown... The three of the four to have not rowed before. I mean, you know, the lady who lives down in Cornwall, ha, ha, you know, has kayaked quite regularly. But to, to be thinking of a 3,000 mile task mm. and you've never you've never actually used the mode of transport before, three of you. I mean, it is it is incredible what they are it trying is, to yeah. do and what they're trying to achieve. The thing I struggle to get my head around, I think the most, because there's a few stats that I'll hit you with that are, okay. that are interesting elements in the equation. On average at the moment, they're having to consume 5,000 calories a day in order to, to be fit enough to train and to, and to do what's being required. So uh, in, terms of, Macs, of, in terms of what's required, well, indeed, <laughs> in terms of what's required for, um, you know, for, for an average intake for a female, that's two and a half times what the average intake is. It's twice what it is for, for a man. Okay, when they're out there for 40, 50 days, you know, you're talking potentially 20 foot waves and it's only a 28 foot boat that doesn't have a roof. I saw it the other day on Instagram. There's no, you know what I mean? So you're getting wet out there. (laughs) All right, that's that's going to happen. But but the thing I think I struggle to get my head around the most, if I'm totally honest, was the idea that, as I say, it takes potentially 40 to 50 days. But to be two hours on, two hours off, not for, say, 12 hours a day, for 24 hours a day 
every day for 40 or 50 days i think i'd go to pieces like yeah. I, I honestly would um so you know it is uh, it really is just such an extraordinary thing they're doing obviously for a great cause as well and they've managed to, to accrue that you know the sponsor who have, who have given them all the oats and everything mm. which is you know really positive considering all these all these calories they're having to consume yeah, and they're going to track them and we'll absolutely try and keep in keep in check with their progress both beforehand and afterwards Loads of luck wish them from this side. But, it, I mean, it's just phenomenal. It is phenomenal what they're trying to do. Uh, it's, it's almost... I mean, I'm, I even now sat here, I've, I obviously heard that interview when you sent it to me earlier in the week and everything, and I, I'm honestly just baffled by it even now, even hearing it again then, if you know what I mean. I, I honestly cannot even fathom the idea of... of if, I can't... Well, Rowan down the road on on the on the, on the Thames for me is is enough to to make me just um, go out of breath thinking about it let alone the idea of doing what they're doing it, it really is an incredible thing I, I don't think there's enough I mean like I, I, I the one thing I really am struggling with is the idea that like you said they've never even done it like you like you said you'd expect them to have done it together for what 10 years 15 years to be taking on something like this does that make you know regardless of how of how the race goes you know it, even even if, you know, it, it really does take them longer than they would like or, or anything like that. Does that make the accomplishment sort of eclipse pretty much anything else anyway, do you think? I, I think it probably does, to be honest with you. It's not just that, but the circumstances they met in meeting mm. online, yeah. um, you know, in lockdown uh, and therefore not being able to even train together. Yeah. And how, how, you know, not having that synergy with somebody you've known for so long by virtue of the distance between them as well to to then go and if they achieve what they're trying to achieve even just completing the race but if they also become you know there's only two full fully female crews taking part but if they then are the one you know the one that completed the quickest i mean it is it's astonishing it's the sort of thing whereby you'd be like yeah that, that could be made into a film um yeah, you know it really in, all, is, in yeah. all seriousness so you know as i say we wish them the very best of luck obviously but um you know we'll be keeping in touch with them and hopefully hearing from them again prior to their departure mm. but uh, they finish in antigua so hopefully when they do get there, they'll uh, they'll take a they'll, <laughs> they'll take a break and maybe just enjoy the sun for a little bit. I've just seen, I've just seen a stat as well. More people have climbed Everest than rode the Atlantic Ocean. That's I mean I've not seen that, but that's, that's incredible. Isn't it? That is absolutely <laughs> incredible. And that if that doesn't sum up the magnitude of what they're doing, I don't know what quite does. I mean, obviously, best of luck to them all from River Radio, as Ed mentioned. Uh, but next up, we're going to be talking about our hot topic. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. That's right, we're back for our Hot Topic section this week. And naturally, there's been loads to get through in the week of sport that we've that we've all seen unfold, but um, obviously before our eyes. Um, we're going to get into Ben Stokes in a minute, who obviously announced he's going to be returning to the Ashes squad, which is going to be absolutely incredible. A massive, massive boost for England going over there. But first and foremost, Ed, I just want to get your thoughts on something. Obviously, you work in your uh, in your other role quite closely with um, you know a lot of sort of the Premier League production and all that sort of stuff. The big, the big story has to be the score at the weekend, which I think a lot of people were not necessarily shocked by, but it was a very sort of it was surprising at the same time, if that makes sense. Obviously, we're talking about Manchester United nil, Liverpool five. Are you as surprised as I am to still see Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on a job? Um, 
Yes and no would be the, the, the clear answer to that question, although it's not clear at all, is it? It's very cryptic. <laughs> what I mean by that is I'm not surprised in the sense that Man United have consistently talked about buying into a project. So mm-hmm. I'm not surprised in that regard because I think it would be a knee-jerk reaction to simply get rid of him because of this. I do think, however, that what this has done is, has opened a door that was perhaps slightly ajar and has opened it quite wide with regards to the doubts over whether or not he is, if you like, tactically the person who is going to mastermind Man United getting back to the summit of English football, mm-hmm. to be quite honest with you. They looked like they were exposed. And I personally, and this is purely my personal opinion, wasn't totally convinced by the uh, justifications that he gave for why Manchester United went and tried to apply a very high press, for example, when they've been so successful playing against teams like Manchester City on the counter. And and that's been kind of their setup, for which he's also been criticised. Let's be very clear mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. But there are times when it's really, really worked. If ever there was a team where playing counter-attack, particularly when Man United are out of form, um, was going to maybe be the best strategy to adopt, this was probably it. We can all talk in hindsight about what people should have done, but the defeat was colossal. I mean, colossal, seismic in Manchester United terms. Be under no illusion, even though they're not in the same city, those two clubs consider that to be the bigger rivalry. It's a bigger rivalry for Liverpool than they have with Everton. It's a bigger rivalry for Manchester United than they have with Manchester City. And to say, well, it was our home ground and we should play like this, not good enough. That's not good enough. You You can't play, you've got to play the game, not the occasion. And I think it was it was kind of you know that was sort of one of the one of the cardinal rules of that particular game. Um, so I'm I'm surprised um, I'm surprised in a sense because it is such a dreadful result and managers go after dreadful results in the circumstances. I'm not that surprised because Man United are, are very loyal to to a lot of people um, who particularly those who have a, have a history at the club. I don't think it would be their style to sack a club legend in that way. But I think. I would be surprised at this juncture to see Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in charge next season. Put it that way. No, I completely agree. And I, th- <clears throat> I think it's one of those things, isn't it, where it's it's a sort of um, almost a sort of conflict of interest with with Sir Alex Ferguson having so much to do with his appointment and so much to do with with the way that he's sort of gone about things. But you've got to break it down. He's not won anything the whole time he's been there, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And they've been in, you know, they had the final against Villarreal, which you know ultimately it went to penalties, which we know can go either way and very notoriously can do that. But at the same time, it, it breaks down to the fact that Jose Mourinho who's who's probably not looked upon that favourably on his time in Manchester United won three trophies alright one was the Community Shield but still you know they, they won three trophies and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has not won anything the one thing that struck me most with it as uh, alongside the way they played which you mentioned was the way that they had and it, it's been summed up quite well by, by Gary Neville and Paul Scholes as well who've said you know it's alright having your Paul Pogba your Bruno Fernandes your Cristiano Ronaldo your Mason Greenwood your Marcus Rashford all in one team it looks great on paper and it's the same issue that I think PSG are facing now the players that win your titles aren't bizarrely I don't think of those players you look at the United team that did so well you know when they won the the Champions League in 2008 and and they were they were around that around that sort of time the, the, bit, the most important players in those teams for me, certainly off the ball, are your players like Michael Carrick and Jisung Park that don't get the, that aren't hailed, you know, they won't go and stick one in from 30 yards and, and make out that they, they do all these things incredibly well, but that they, they do the rest, they do the work that the rest don't necessarily want to do or, or can't do. And when you've got a player like Cristiano Ronaldo up front, you have to compensate for that elsewhere on the pitch because Cristiano Ronaldo is, is you know, he's, he's a very fit specimen. He's, he's incredibly, incredibly looks after himself so well, but he's not going to press Virgil van Dijk and Canate. He's just not. That's not the player he is. It's, the play, it's never the player he's been. So do you think there was a, 
there's there's even a bigger issue past the tactics where they haven't got an industrious player that that can compensate for the talent that they've got. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's quite that simple. I think I think there is a collective issue here, which is that Man United have have signed quite a few players. I think personally to show they're still big hitters, mm-hmm. and the team that they have taken those players from, uh, you know, and just pit them at the post is Manchester City. Um, because they did that with Alexis Sanchez and I think they did it with Fred and I think they've done it with Cristiano Ronaldo. Now, perhaps you can't say the same for Cristiano Ronaldo, but if you look at the two players who you would argue maybe the expectations were higher than what they've been able to give consistently in terms of Alexis Sanchez and Fred, I put it to you that had they been coached by Pep Guardiola, they would have been better players. And I think we would be, you know, talking about them far more favourably than we do based on their stints at Old Trafford. Um, But I think Cristiano Ronaldo could well be the signing that in a sense slightly is is Ollie's undoing um, because I don't wholly agree that the, the, the most important players in the team who win you a title are the industrious ones but I think if you look in any team you will find those players and they are just yeah. as important as the teams that, that win you the title I think certainly if you look back at the teams you know the teams that Ronaldo was in where they won the title if you take him out of that team you don't replace him with a player that is going to be as good on, and yeah, occasionally you do need that but but absolutely what you will find throughout those teams like you say is a G-Sung Park is a Michael Carrick the ones who don't get the plaudits in Liverpool's case it was a, it was a James Milner yeah. it was a Jordan Henderson, Jordan Henderson you know they're not, they're, not, they're not as fashionable they're not as trendy they're not as bankable in terms of their you know sponsorship and that kind of thing but ultimately they're integral to how that team took over and work and I think that is where Man United are struggling it is that there aren't enough players who are simply integral to how Man United play because nobody really knows how Manchester United play there is not a clear style if you look at the teams at the moment that are really jousting it for the Premier League title so Chelsea Manchester City and Liverpool I don't think anyone could really refute that those three are the real contenders the stamp of the manager's authority in terms of how they want to play is through that team like a stick of Brighton Rock which yet whichever one it is and in Manchester United's case I don't think I don't think that is that is something you could realistically say so I don't really know how Manchester United approach a game and if you're buying players for big big money they need to fit into a system Manchester mm. United still don't really have a system the system seems to be we'll have these great players and they'll do something magical mm. uh, to be fair the thing about those those players that are a bit more industrious that we've just talked about is that in the teams where they are, you know, the teams where they're, they, they're maybe not as fashionable. Kovacic isn't a particularly fashionable player relative yeah. to some of the other Chelsea names, but he goes and pops up and scores and that kind of thing. You're not seeing a, a Fred and a, and a McTominay weigh in with a goal particularly often, mm. um, which is fine if they're doing integral work that is protecting the team like an Ingo Kante does at Chelsea, but they're not doing that either, you know, because we're still talking about them needing a defensive midfielder and, and this, that, and the other. So, yeah, uh, I think it's, I think it's, it's action stations at Manchester, Manchester United. Uh, I think Solskjaer would be incredibly naive if he didn't see that the writing might well be on the wall. Mm. But I think they will handle his exit um, gently, shall yeah, we say? I think you might be right. Um, I mean, I'll, we'll move on just very quickly to Ben Stokes, but I did just want to say it's all right saying it about Man United. Liverpool were absolutely phenomenal, and that much needs to be said, don't they? You can only beat what's in front of you, and they certainly did that. And and Mo Salah was just unbelievably good. I think I think you'll agree with me in that much, won't you? Absolutely. <laughs> um, the other thing, obviously, in our hot topic section, as I mentioned, Ben Stokes has announced he's going to be back in contention for the Ashes squad. Obviously, you know, very well could be considered. It, 
England's key player, probably, if if not one of. I mean, he obviously took a break from cricket to prioritise his mental well-being. Other than the fact, obviously, how much of a boost it is for England, how refreshing is it to see a professional athlete do that full stop and then get themselves ready for a big event like this? You know, I'm, I'm sure England would so much rather him have missed out on the India tests and things like that to be available for the Ashes. And I, I think it's so, it's so good that he was able to do that and there was no sort of stigma or anything like that around it, was there? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the thing is that it is it is far more common now for athletes to be open and candid about their mental health. But just occasionally, when someone does it who has the sheer profile that Ben Stokes had, because he did it when he was right at the top of his game, wasn't yeah. doing it retrospectively, wasn't talking about something that had happened in the past. And that's not to devalue anyone else who shares in that way. Because to do so, irrespective of the circumstances, is a very brave thing to do, particularly with the scrutiny that you get with sports individuals now who are who are so in the public eye with so many different types of media focus upon them um but for stokes to do it when he was genuinely very much at the top of his game um i think would have been an inspiration to a number a, a number of people and that is so so important and a few people have done that you know tyson fury did it yeah. so we're talking about the guy who is probably pound for pound the best boxer of his generation i think that's pretty much beyond dispute yeah. now and we're talking about someone who probably could have stood toe to toe with people from other generations <laughs> Absolutely. and actually really given as good as he's got and and you're in a pretty solid company when you do that to say that you know you were really struggling mentally to do that is is kind of is unique in its own way because of the individual and nobody can really control that in Ben Stokes's case I think it is is really really positive is really good for cricket sport and society as a whole for an individual to do that and the way in which he'll be welcomed back because he was so important I mean just quickly I was at the World Cup final in 2019 and for all intents and purposes that was the Ben Stokes show yeah, because it, in all seriousness nobody really gave New Zealand that much of a chance going into that game England were at home it was being played at the home of cricket it just seemed to be destiny England will win it well I can tell you that when they lost a couple of players that they did very early on in the innings destiny looked like it had been thrown to the wind that that wasn't happening yeah. anymore and Ben Stokes was to cricket on that day for England what David Beckham was to football um, against Greece back yeah, in 2002 yeah, it was that type of performance 100%. I've never seen anything like it and I, I'm confident I'm 32 I'm confident I will never see a performance of that nature that Herculean again irrespective of whatever sports event I attend. And there will probably be quite a lot in the future as well yeah. by virtue of what I do for a living. Yeah. Um, but it was just absolutely phenomenal. So to, to have him back, you know, after being the role model that he has been, I think is going to be a, a, a tremendous boost for, for England. You know, full credit to him for being as open and candid as he has been and, and prioritising his mental health because ultimately that is something that so many struggle to do. For him to, to go and do that when he's, you know, doing what he loves, um, I think showed, showed great bravery and, you uh, yeah, you know, we're, we're glad to have him back. Absolutely, we are. And he obviously missed England's last trip to Australia in 1718 amid the uh, allegations of, um, of actual bodily harm eventually was found not guilty for. So it's a real chance for him to sort of uh, finally get out there and, and play at those grounds that you dream about playing at as a young cricketer. So it'll be really good for him to do that. Finally, before we run out of time, don't worry, we haven't forgotten about it. It's the Predictions League. It's coming to the end of the show and you know what that means. Yes, it's the biggest sporting spectacle in the country. That's I, I don't think that, you know, is is 
more than more than what it's worth it's the infamous river radio predictions league we're on the last week of the new month which means the results are piling in it's coming to decision time we're going to be having a forfeit but thankfully for myself i'm currently joint top or well i am top on points but i'm joint top on points per game which i'm not that impressed with but unfortunately we don't have time to go into it um a quick reminder of the I'll rules make time. <laughs> <laughs> a quick reminder of the rules um each week a member of the team picks out a set of fixtures due to take plays in the coming days with each player making a predictions for the outcome of each a completely correct prediction will earn a player three points whilst correctly forecasting the outcome the winner or the loser earns one failure to do either naturally wins no points quickly we'll rattle through them ed reading v bournemouth uh, what have you gone for on that well, I've taken to some extent my my lead from Jacob, who has gone for a three nil loss. I think John Swift will probably get a goal. I think he'll be Reading's redeeming feature, but I, I think Bournemouth are, are going to be too much for Reading on the back of two defeats. I've gone for a three one Bournemouth win. I think it will be closer than a lot of people think. I do still think Bournemouth will win, but I've gone for two one myself. Uh, Marlowe v Aylesbury in the rugby. What have you gone for in that? Really difficult to predict this one. Aylesbury are top. Marlow are fifth. Um, Marlow have lost one game out of four. Aylesbury have lost none, but they've not played anybody where that team has then played the other. So it's really hard to get any it kind really of barometer. Is, yeah. I, I have gone for an Aylesbury win. I've put it uh, 22-37 in Aylesbury's favour. I've gone for 24-10. Uh, obviously, we've got uh, the un- Eagles under-19s against the Royals in netball with respect to the Eagles last week. What are you going for in that one? Just a w- just the result. It's the Eagles under-19s, isn't it? Uh, I'm going to go for... I've seen the Eagles play before. They're a good side. I, I think uh, I think the Eagles will, will do this one. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. Um, and then, obviously, finally, the T20 cricket. England play Australia how do you see that one going uh, it's it's very difficult to back against the England T20 team and yeah. but bucking a trend no I haven't I've got England um, <laughs> I'm surprised to see the amount of our of our team actually going against uh, going against their roots so to speak but uh, I've, I've gone for England as well we are rapidly running out of time here on River Radio though uh, I mean Ed thank you so much for joining me it's been an absolute pleasure 